Nice to have you with us today, and a real pleasure to welcome back our first guest on the program today. He is a former professor of health policy at York University. He is an emergency room physician with the Toronto Health Network. He is Dr. Joe Election, who has uh, fresh off an appearance before the House of Commons Industry Committee a few days ago, uh, in which he had a few sharp words for the federal government. Dr. Lexon, welcome back, and good morning, sir. Thanks, Sverling. It's a pleasure to be back with you. Well, it's a pleasure to have you with us. Now, a lot of Canadians may be not recognizing your contribution to the uh, uh, hearings the other day in front of the uh, House uh, Commons Industry Committee, may recognize a quote by one of your colleagues uh, from the University of Ottawa, Dr. Uh, Amir Atharan, who, who said uh, in, the, in, the, the, uh, in his testimony, quote, when you take the scientific backwardness combined with the secrecy that didn't allow outsiders to detect our missteps in 2020, you end up with the disaster we have in 2021. We blew it. That quote resonated from coast to coast uh, over the past couple of days. Dr. Lection, you were part of that hearing. Tell us what, uh, what impact those remarks had on, on the politicians involved. Well, I think that like any po- political um committee, the, the impact depended on which political party you were with. Of course. So, but I think that um, it certainly affected the tenor of the meeting, those kinds of strong um, remarks about the, what Canada had done. So I think even if you were a Liberal Party member, um, you would have to um, be worried about those remarks coming from um, people who are closely observing the situation, um, those things resonate. Um, they make people doubt what how what the government is doing. Exactly, yeah. Um, and I think that what the government has been doing or not doing in a number of cases um, feeds into vaccine hesitancy. People are now thinking, well... Um, how safe is this vaccine? Why isn't it here? Um, should I be getting it? What's the government been do not telling me? Um, and all those, um, all those, all those negative comments, some of which are quite justified in terms of um, government secrecy. Um, make people worried about the vaccine. And I think that, unfortunately, that's the um, wrong attitude to be taking about the vaccine. I've gotten it. Um, The 90 doctors that I work with in the emergency department have all gotten it. We're quite happy that we've got it. Sure, of course. So, so, Dr. Lection, the and just on this vaccine hesitancy matter, and we'll return to secrecy in a moment, you know, that the messaging is pretty spotty. And yesterday, for example, a new twist to the plot, if you will, sir, with the folks from Pfizer now saying, well, you know, that first dose may, may actually be enough. And this is the company that was very adamant right up front. It's a two-step process. The first injection goes uh, 21 days before 
before the second one, or perhaps I'm getting Pfizer and Moderna backwards and it would be 28 days. But either way, there was a very specific term between injection one and two. And now, uh, all these many months later, once we've been sort of inculcated with this basic information, we're now being told, well, you know, that second uh, that second shot may not be necessary at all. At whether it may or may not, Dr. Joel, is, is, is one thing. What it is absolutely guaranteed to do is confuse an awful lot of Canadians. That's right. Um, and confusion is something that we don't need at this point. Um, unfortunately, this, this kind of mixed messaging um, does create doubts in people's minds Precisely. about what companies are saying. Is it one dose? Is it two doses? Um, can I wait? Should I just wait three weeks between doses? What yeah. about four weeks or five weeks? Um, and sometimes the the reason for this is just a lack of um, scientific knowledge. These are new. <clears throat> excuse me. These are new vaccines. Sure. Um, and information is changing as we go along. Are these vaccines going to be useful against the new variants? Um, well, we don't know that either. Mm -hmm. South Africa has called off its use of the AstraZeneca vaccine because it doesn't think it's going to be useful. Um, but on the other hand, Australia is going to be starting with the AstraZeneca vaccine within the next couple of weeks. Right. Um, and naturally, people hear all these mixed messaging, mixed messages, and um, and don't really know what to believe. Doctor Lection, you said you've had your your vaccine. Did you get two shots and and appropriately distanced between the two, or have you just had the one? Two shots, and with the three week distance. When I got them. Um, in late December and mid January, there wasn't the um, there wasn't the problem with supply. Sure. We got the Pfizer vaccine. So now, one of the things that uh, you had to say on the hearings the other day in Ottawa, you were quite specific based on your background as a health policy professor and researcher and consultant. You were very concerned and had a lot to say about secrecy surrounding this whole thing. The fact that, and, and it's, it, the government says, well, we can't just sort of put the contracts out and, and publish them on the front page of the Toronto Star. That's, 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 that's uh, corporate suicide. You know, these, these companies don't want the price arrangements with individual countries discussed because it's, it's private business and they may be charging one con company or country, rather, more than another. So they're very loath to release any information regarding contractual agreements with Big Pharma. You say secrecy is very unhelpful. Secrecy is unhelpful for... Uh for a couple of reasons. So first of all, um, we don't really know if the companies, what the companies promised um, and if they're living up to those promises. So are the number of doses we're supposed to be getting on a weekly basis, a monthly basis, a quarterly basis? Are there, um, are there penalties if companies don't don't uh, meet the what they've agreed to in terms of delivery? Um, those kinds of things again create doubt in people's minds. 
um, and doubt is what we don't want. The other area where we've seen secrecy is from the um, the COVID nineteen vaccine task force. Right. This was a um, set up back in late spring um, to advise the government about vaccine purchases, um, but a lot a number. The government initially didn't um, make the names of the people public. When they made the names of the people public, they didn't make their conflict of interest public. And what we've seen now from the little information that's leaked out or that the government has made public is that the two co-chairs have serious conflicts of interest, especially with um, Sanofi um, and we don't know whether, because the government, we don't see what the debates were in the committee meet, in the meetings of this task force. We don't know whether or not the conflict of interest affected the decisions that were made by the task force. Mm-hmm. Um, and all that again just creates doubts. So, are we? Did the task force recommendations um, result from good science? or from conflicts of interest that might benefit the companies that the co-chairs had relationships with. I need to take a break for the news, Dr. Election, but just before we do, do we now at least know the entire makeup of that task force? We know the people who are on it, um, and we know at the meetings that they attended whether or not they declared conflicts of interest. There may be other conflicts that they have, that um, weren't declared because the com- those particular companies weren't discussed at the meetings. Dr. Joel Lection is back with us on the program today. Always a pleasure to have Dr. Lection join us. He was one of several witnesses who appeared before the House of Commons Industry Committee this week, testifying uh, on, on the matter of vaccine procurement. And Dr. Lection's particular t- attention was paid by you and several of your colleague witnesses uh, on the matter of the task force the government chose to help procure vaccines in the first place. It took many months before Canadians were even allowed to know the names of the members of this task force, and then some time after that to discover that several members of the committee had indeed rather blatant conflicts of interest uh, with the pharma, uh, big pharma. And so what is that? What is the status of that committee this morning? Um, <clears throat> the committee, as far as I know, um, still exists to give advice about vaccines we're seeing. We're still waiting for a couple of vaccines to be approved by yes. Health Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, those vaccines have already been. Are per, uh, there's been a purchase agreement made, providing they pass Health Canada standards. There are other vaccines that are being developed that probably will require um, advice from the task force. And the task force. <clears throat> But the task force should really be made up of people without any conflicts of interest. It's fine if you want to hear from people with conflicts. They can can talk to the task force members. They can say what they think. But people with conflicts should not be in a position to be voting on recommendations. That even if their votes aren't affected by their conflicts, there's the perception that they may be and perception is often um, reality as far as people are concerned. So 
when you start to be start to wonder whether or not or, uh, about the quality of the advice that comes from the task force, then that just erodes trust in the decision and the decisions that are eventually made based on the task force's recommendations. Not a good situation for anybody. Well, no, and it, it's public trust, is, but there's the bottom line again. And we've already mentioned this two or three times, and you, I, you and I always come to this bottom line, Dr. Lection, when we talk. And it's always a pleasure to have you to, to back to talk more about it, because public trust is where this thing is, where the rubber hits the road. Because you're talking now about vaccine hesitancy, and we've got lots of polling evidence to suggest that most Canadians are, are at least uh, curious and uh, most leaning towards the vaccine but there seems to be a growing percentage of the population that's in that you know i'm not against it necessarily but you know i'm quite prepared to wait until lots of other people have taken their turn first and that's not the kind of attitude you're looking for is it no um but those attitudes are understandable sure um people are people want to be safe um and they're faced with they, there are two contradictory um, impulses. So one is the the pandemic is out there. Uh, am I going to get the virus? Am I going to die from the virus? Am I going to give it to my elderly parents? Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, there's also, gee, this vaccine, it was developed so quickly. I've heard all these horror stories about the drug companies how they make deals with the devil. Um, Can I trust the vaccine? So what do I do? Do I get COVID and risk dying? Mm -hmm. Or do I take a vaccine that I'm worried about? Um, And that just feeds into this this vaccine hesitancy, which is, um, as I said, the last thing that we want. Um, We need, in my view, we need the vaccine. Um, but people have to be willing to take it. If enough people don't take the vaccine, then we don't reach what's called herd immunity. In other words, the level of immunity where the virus just has no place to go. Dr. Lection, I think some of the balance may be struck by another factor that you and I have discussed at length in the past, and this, this whole phenomenon of pandemic fatigue and we're starting to see things there's a poll out in bc this week dr joel that suggests that 65 percent of british columbians over the spring break vacation are knowingly going to break one or more public health orders because that's just the way things seem to be shaking out Uh, and and again a lot of that is just you know we're doing everything we're being asked to do uh, and uh, and uh, and some of the some of what we're being asked to do doesn't seem to make a great deal of sense to a lot of people so again uh there there are there's a combination of factors uh, and fet, uh, pandemic fatigue is one of them what do you what do you say to people in in ontario and your colleagues uh, who are confronted by this public attitude premier ford is having some real problems with lockdowns based exclusively on pandemic fatigue the pandemic fatigue is a real thing. I mean, even my wife and I are getting pretty tired of just seeing each other. Um, we'd like to see some. We'd like to see some of our friends. We'd like to hug our kids. Sure. Um, but um, if we do that, 
And that's a really natural thing to want to do is to humans are social beings. We want to be able to interact with people. But if we do that, um, we risk making people a lot sicker. So I tell people about the, the patients that we've seen in the emergency department, um, some of them young, health, previously healthy people who got very sick by taking um, what they thought were minor risks. They went out and had a beer with somebody in their, even in their home, somebody else's home. Um, and these people get sick, mm-hmm. some of them, um, end up in the ICU. Uh, on a few of them, fortunately, very few of them end up dying. But people get very can get sick, and I just emphasize the um, the people that we've seen who've um, who've taken risks and um, paid the price. Well, of course. And uh, can we go back to the the matter of secrecy uh, as well? Because this is uh, again, what you, I, I'm looking at the factors that are contributing to public attitudes, Doctor Lection, and and fatigue, a very normal human reaction, combined with. For, for, for some reason, a government uh, at the federal level, at least, that seems very determined not to let us know as much as it possibly can. Um, that's that, not helpful. That's not helpful, but that um, when it comes to at least matters around um, prescription drugs and vaccines, um, that's been a pattern that the federal government has adopted for at least 40 or 50 years, the um, attitude, back in the early 2000s, the um, science writers of Canada gave Health Canada uh, an award for being the most secret department in the federal government. Mm. Um, and while some of that has changed, a lot of it hasn't, the federal government still regard, seems to regard um, information about prescription drugs and and now vaccines as something to guard um, rather than something to um, make known to the public so that everybody can under can see what the information is um, can understand better why certain decisions were made or not made um, without that kind of information though it just feeds into um, conspiracy theories, doubt, um, and again, as I've been emphasizing in this interview, those are the things that um, are going to make the situation even worse. Yeah. Dr. Lection, final question for you this morning, sir, and we're, we're really re- grateful for your time again. How confident are you, Dr. Joel, about the promise uh, by the government uh, that uh, Canadians, all Canadians who want one, will have a shot by September 1st, by Labor Day? It would certainly make my um, work in the emergency department easier bet. if that was the case. But um, based on what we've seen now, um, I'm somewhat skeptical about that promise. Okay, I'll leave it there, and we'll talk again as to why, perhaps when we get a little closer to September 1st. Dr. Lection, thanks so much for doing this. It's always a real treat to have you on the show, sir, and I look forward to our next uh, opportunity to speak already. 
Thanks very much, Sterling. Been a pleasure. Dr. Joe Election, former York University health policy professor, drug industry watchdog, uh, who testified before the House of Commons Industry Committee just a couple of days ago. This past Monday was Plastics a Pollution Awareness Day here in British Columbia. Our Environment Minister, George Heyman, uh, made a proclamation and, and introduced the Clear BC Plastics Action Plan, uh, pointing that several communities, smaller communities across the province, are introducing what they are calling tailored to their community, specifically uh, plastic bans, uh, and the minister also announcing four new plastic bans for British Columbia. So uh, this uh, announcement by British Columbia and the ban on plastic is also something that's being considered by the Biden administration in the United States as President Biden assumes office and uh, dramatically overhauls a lot of the uh, environmental rules uh, that Mr. Trump had established uh, and they're going to be completely removed. And uh, certainly a plastics ban is one of the items being considered. Our next guest writes this about the Biden administration plans and which could easily be a applied to British Columbia's plans. While there's no doubt all of these uh, plans will put plastics in the crosshairs, he writes, we should ask whether plastic bans are, on the whole, a net positive for the environment and climate. If we care about the environment, much of the evidence dug up by other countries points us in the opposite direction. He who wrote such words, heresy to some, is David Clement, the North American Affairs Manager with the Consumer Choice Center. He's back with us on the program. David, good to have you back with us. Good morning. Thank you very much for having me back on the show. Looking forward to it. Well, it's good to have you with us. And uh, with that uh, in mind, what then, if uh, if you look at uh, the other countries, let's just follow up and then pick up where you left off in your in your mm-hmm. article in, in, in the Consumer Choice uh, uh, blog that you wrote. What are the other countries up to that may point uh, plastic bans, uh, point out plastic bans as being maybe unnecessary, a little over the top? Give us some examples. Yeah, so the the Environment Ministry in Denmark, uh, they use 15 environmental benchmarks to evaluate plastic bags versus their alternatives. What they found, based on things like ozone depletion, ocean acidification, soil acidification, essentially like a a comprehensive view of how these products are used and then reused, showed that paper bag replacements have to be reused 43 times in order to have the same impact as a single-use plastic bag. And so everyone knows that paper bags are never reused 43 times. Mm-hmm. And when you when you move to other alternatives, that figure gets exponentially worse. And so cloth or cotton bags have to be reused of upwards of 7,100 times. And so in trying to shift consumers to alternatives... Many governments, whether it be the Biden administration or some of the local governments in British Columbia, will actually be pushing consumers to items that have a net, a higher net negative impact on the environment. And the real problem with that is that it completely sidesteps the real conversation of how do we get this waste out of the environment? How do we get it out of landfills? And there are some real um, there is some serious progress being made in other jurisdictions where rather than banning plastics, they've actually focused on 
removing it properly from the waste management system where it can be converted, repurposed, recycled, Mm -hmm. and turned into all sorts of other products. And so my concern is that we're shifting or forcing a shift on consumers to net negative um, alternatives. And then, of course, you have to factor in the business costs because this this is going to seriously impact the food service industry, which has been devastated by the pandemic. They've relied on single-use plastic items for takeout, for delivery, for containers and things like that. And so it does also seem like bad timing to, to, to kick these food service providers and restaurants um, while they're trying to hold it together uh, and then ultimately while, while they try to recover yeah. um, once the pandemic is over. So, David, here's an even more practical example of, of, of where, where the rubber meets the road on this matter. Here in British Columbia, they banned, uh, and I'm talking, you're talking about uh, the restaurant and the food service industry. Let's, let's cut it even, even closer to the bone and talk about booze. In British Columbia, uh, the B.C. government liquor stores banned plastic bags, and that used to be the way you brought home your, your bottle of wine or whatever. And they, re- mm-hmm. in, they reintroduced uh, um, pla- uh, paper bags. Uh, And then so the pandemic struck, and then it suddenly became uh, impractical to have uh, paper bags. And so they went back. Interestingly, they went back to plastic bags because of the contact issues. uh, And they thought Mm -hmm. that returning to plastic would be a healthier option for consumers at BC liquor stores. So now that phase has come and gone. And now we're back to uh, 10 cents each, please, paper bags, which, uh, you know, had it happen to me yesterday fall apart before you even get them home if you don't carry them properly so on a yeah. just a purely practical standpoint uh it's it's not it's not a it's not a, a lateral move is it no it certainly isn't and i can actually give you some some anecdotal evidence from my own life so my wife and i try to um support local restaurants as much as we can um we haven't done indoor dining because it hasn't been legal to do so. Sure, so we yeah. rely on rely on delivery. And one restaurant in particular has already switched over to these cloth bag alternatives. Mm-hmm. And so we try and order from them, let's say once a week. We have about thirteen of these cloth bags. I will never reuse any of those cloth bags seventy one hundred times to make them environmentally advantageous. And so here I have all of these bags. They're not being recycled. At the end of the day, although I'm resistant to it, I'm going to have to throw them out. Mm. And from an environmental perspective, now multiply, that's my own personal example, multiply that by all of us. Every time we go and pick up food from a restaurant, it gets delivered to our house. We go to the grocery store and you start to see this multiply upwards in a really uncomfortable way. And so I think that most of these bands are built on the perception that it protects the environment. Mm-hmm, yeah. so my worry is that we're going to have this conversation in a year or two years from now when we're talking about the environmental damage caused by the alternatives. Yeah, interesting. And so, yeah, and so my concern here is that we're really going the wrong route and we're not focusing on actually reclaiming plastic, which is what we've seen in other jurisdictions where they've gone with a ban is that uh, uh, grocery stores or alternatives have switched to the thicker plastic bags and then we have the same usage usage patterns and so now we just have thicker plastic ending up in the environment or ending up in landfills because the state level government or the local government or the provincial government hasn't actually invested any money in the infrastructure to collect it 
so that it can be repurposed and recycled. Exactly. And one of the reasons, friends, that our guest has been unable to go out to dine, unlike here in British Columbia, he's in Mississauga, Ontario. And uh, up until this weekend, they've been locked down completely. And I know the rules just changed, David. Are you still under, under full lockdown today? Uh, no. So where I actually live, um, in the, just on the outside of the greater Toronto area, some restrictions have lifted. So okay. you can you can indoor dine uh, upwards of 10 people maximum in a restaurant. Um, so still very limited. Okay. Uh, still very limited. Yeah. David Clement joining us from Oakville, Ontario. Mr. Clement is the North American Affairs Manager with the Consumer Choice Center, uh, who's written extensively recently about pollution and plastics specifically uh, as they apply to policy to be introduced by the Biden administration, conveniently timed well enough to, uh, to comment on announcements just a few days ago here in British Columbia by Environment Minister George Heyman uh, that, of course, said that Monday was Plastic Pollution Awareness Day and he went on and uh, in detail described the Clear BC Plastics Action Plan. And you should know, David, that here in BC, plastic recycling is a big deal. And I think in terms of innovation and tip of the spear sort of uh, government combined with the public sector, or I'm sorry, with the private sector efforts to, uh, to spearhead new new recycling technology, I think we're probably uh, pretty much at the at the very tip of the Canadian spear in terms of innovation and determination to do more. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's what makes this, this ban announcement so depressing is because the province and in some instances communities have expressed a willingness to actually tackle plastic waste. Mm -hmm. Um, But this is a rather lazy way of going about it, one that could have those negative environmental externalities. And so what I would love for them to do is focus on the fact that all plastic can, once it's reclaimed, so long as you reclaim it, it doesn't end up in landfills and it doesn't end up in the environment. You can either recycle it properly, which is like turning a pop bottle into a pop bottle. Mm -hmm. You can uh, repurpose it, which is, um, basically taking some problematic plastic, shredding it and fusing it into another product, or you can convert it, which is through chemical depolymerization, which is where they actually alter the bonds and turn it into resin pellets or tiles for your home or high strength graphene, which is used in construction or even road asphalt so that the roads are more durable and you don't have to repave them and you don't have the pothole issues that kind of plague Canadian cities because of our winters. Mm -hmm. So there are all sorts of really interesting ways we can go about tackling this that doesn't include basically saying, okay, we're not going to allow business owners to offer these options to consumers anymore. Um, And so my, my focus here is not that plastic waste isn't a problem because I certainly think it is. Sure. And BC has a unique uh, responsibility being a coastal province. So the, 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 a task at hand is even much larger. Um, but I think that they can solve it without going the route of a ban and focusing on the expansion of some of these innovative technologies. Yeah, David, only a couple of minutes left here, but I wanted to talk about microplastics. You mentioned it a mm-hmm. moment ago, and of all of the stuff in the whole plastics file, I think the microplastics part of it is the scariest to most consumers because we don't yeah. even know what it means. All we know is what we understand it to mean, which is these the tiny little uh, plastic bits in our water system and, mm-hmm. and, and everywhere they shouldn't be. And how do we get rid of that? 
Yeah, so serious issue. There was a report done by OceanWise uh, off the coast of BC that showed nearshore water had about 3,200 particles of microplastics per cubic meter. Mm -hmm. So first off, uh, a serious effort on reclaiming plastic chips away at the creation of any new microplastics because they're not sitting in the environment degrading into these little particles. So that's step one. Step two is there are some, some scientists and researchers through a process called electrolytic oxidation. And what they do is they actually attack the microplastics in the water without adding chemicals, and that breaks it down into CO2 and water. And so that's a way of actually uh, react, or, uh, retroactively solving microplastics that are already in the environment. And so we have the technology now to better reclaim plastic to avoid future microplastics, and we have some capabilities to actually deal with the microplastics that are already in our water systems. And so that's a really important tool because a lot of people will say, well, we need to ban these products because they end up in landfills and then we have microplastics. And I think that microplastics is a serious issue, but what we can do is better focus on ensuring that they don't end up in landfills, that they don't end up in our um, in our environment and that is one half of the equation of, of dealing with microplastics okay only you've got a couple of seconds left what do you think biden's going to do uh, we know what bc has done we just got the big announcement a few days ago is biden going to ban plastics in america i i really hope not i really hope not i know that there's pressure from the progressive side of the democratic party but i'm hoping that evidence-based uh, centrist Joe Biden uh, wins the day and prevails in providing some legislation that focuses on helping states reclaim plastic rather than going the lazy route and banning it. All right. You, if you want to read more about what David thinks about Joe Biden's plans for the future, Biden's bold climate plan shouldn't ban plastics. That's his warning. And it's all there for you at consumerchoicecenter.org. David Clement, great to have you back on the show again, sir. Always always fun to have you with us, David. You, you do outstanding homework. I look forward to our next opportunity to talk. Thank you very much, Sterling. There's David Clement joining us from Mississauga, Ontario. Due to the increased need for help, the Variety Show of Hearts will be presented this year in an all-new format with the goal of raising even more money for BC's kids with special needs. The three-day event kicked off on Thursday on the Global News Morning Show and has been going on ever since with the News Hour, both noon and 6 o'clock, uh, with lots of features and lots of information about how how uh, the money gets raised and, most importantly, where the money goes. And it, it culminates this afternoon with the 55th fifth annual, no less, Variety Show of Hearts Telethon on Global BC. It kicks in at one o'clock this afternoon. Uh, lots of people expected. David Foster, Pia Toscano, Loverboy will be there, uh, and as will our next guest. And we're going to meet her now uh, before we meet her on TV later. Jennifer Dalmere is with us from Richmond this morning. Jennifer is the mother of Layla Dalmere, and uh, Layla has benefited through her life uh, with uh, assistance from Variety, the children's charity. Jennifer, good morning. And thanks for joining us today. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Well, it's great to have you with us. How's Layla doing this morning? She's great. She's, uh, yeah, she's just fantastic having a great uh, winter and enjoying a day off from school. I'll bet. Now, when uh, we see you on the telethon this afternoon, will uh, that be a, a, a segment that you have already recorded with Layla? And uh, so, uh, what, if so, when was that done? 
We recorded this a couple of weeks ago now, and um, yeah, Variety's been uh, communicating a lot with me, and not just today, but over the years. Sure. So it's been lovely to spend some time with Variety and update them on our story and where Variety has traveled with us up to this point. Well, let's hear a little bit more about Layla's story. She's 11, right? Yes, she is. And um, tell us uh, tell us about Layla's special needs, Jennifer, so we can come to appreciate a little bit more the work and the assistance that Variety is able to provide to you and your family. Great. So Layla was born uh, 11 years ago with a very rare genetic condition, which wasn't diagnosed upon birth. Uh, and it was upon birth when all of her special needs uh, came to light. So over the years, uh, while we travel down the road of her, um, you know, struggles, challenges, uh, and journey, we've really been cushioned while we explore exactly what her needs are, what all the underlying details are. So uh, the world of special needs has been there with us while we learn about her research, figure out uh, to connect the dots of the puzzle that Layla really seemed to be. Uh, So Layla basically presents um, non-mobile. She is non-verbal. She is considered legally blind. Um, There's a lot of different challenges that shape her and in, you know, that I can describe her as. She's a lovely little girl with a lot of needs and requires full-time support in order for her to to function and be a contributing member of society. Yeah. Jennifer, you mentioned when she was born, uh, there were, it was obvious from the get-go that there were going to be issues. How mm-hmm. long, How long though, did it take until you actually found out the real nature of the problem? Interesting question. I would say subtly and within the first year of life, uh, and then the needs started to emerge. So it's... It, it really was noticeable right away. Yeah. We just didn't know what it was. Sure. So um, it, it took us years to get to a point where we can define it with a label. But as far as actually understanding that this uh, little girl that uh, you know has come into my life is going to have serious challenges mm-hmm. happened within the first year. By nine months, I knew that I was going to be with her uh in the world of special needs. And that's really when our work advocating kicked in. Right. And when, when did you first contact Variety? When did that intersection occur, Jennifer? Uh, really when we started exploring her mobility needs. Obviously, when she was a baby, she was fully supported in infancy and through the different programs that are uh, are there for us, but Variety really kicked in when her mobility needs started to come into play. And I have to say that Variety came in early. So it really set the tone for me to actually travel into that world. So they were there early helping me set up those steps. So it was very clear to me that Variety was going to be a part of her life, as well as all these little kiddos' lives. Sure. So it was really cool. And it, it really did kickstart with her wheelchair. So when we, we transitioned from strollers to more advanced mobility and then followed very quickly by helping us with um, 
uh, a wheelchair accessible van. Jennifer, how does that happen? How does that first contact occur? Are you mm-hmm. referred to Variety by a physician? Does someone from Variety call you because they've heard about you? Mm-hmm. Do you pick up the phone and call? How does that that first contact occur? I mean, they've been marvelous to you and such mm-hmm. a benefit for Layla's uh, entire life. But how did that first contact happen? It really came with the resources that were in Layla's world during infancy. Okay. I really, ex- I, I really sat down put pen to paper and wrote down everyone that's going to be a part of her life now and how this is going to now, those arrows will direct in the future. And through her team of resources, which is a huge, amazing team, it was through them that we started talking about variety and what they were going to be in Layla's life. So that happened through her resource team, and then they reached out to me once it was time to get going. And uh, as her needs evolved, as she ages and grows, she's 11 now, and uh, Mm -hmm. her needs have changed, and you were able to, uh, with the assistance of Variety, obtain a wheelchair, and now there's a van that's involved. And it's it's safe to assume that going forward, the needs will continue to evolve. Isn't it fabulous knowing that Variety is in your corner? Fabulous. Uh, In my corner, and all parents like myself, I feel equipped and comforted, but I also feel like Layla and all of her pals, we have backing, we have support. And these kiddos really need it. It doesn't end at five. It doesn't end at six. There is no end to the supports that are required in their lives. And Variety is such a stronghold in the community to lay that ground for these kids as they grow. It is beyond fantastic. And I think in Layla's world, people see that and they know the role that the varieties play in her life and how enormous it is to keep these kids um, happy, safe, and thriving. Jennifer Delmere, thanks very much for doing this this morning. We appreciate you getting up a little early to do this. We look forward to seeing you and Layla on the telethon this afternoon. Thank you. It's our pleasure entirely. And don't forget the number, by the way, friends, is 310KIDS, or you can do it online to donate at variety.bc.ca. And for goodness sake, turn on the tube at 1 o'clock this afternoon on Global and join the 55th annual Variety Show of Hearts Telethon. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. (laughs) And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.